this morning as we continue our Sunday summer series in Psalms. I am privileged to introduce our guest speaker uh, this morning. Joe Jones is going to be teaching us from God's Word. Joe is the Vice President of Production for Crossway Publishers in Wheaton, Illinois. He has been uh, good friends for over a dozen years with Drew Hunter, who is our teaching elder, who's currently on sabbatical. Uh, they were in grad school together uh, at Wheaton, uh, graduate school, and then they served together on staff uh, at a church in that area as well. Uh, he and his wife, Rachel, have four children, so they're with us today, Rachel and the Jones family. We're so glad that you could be with us, so uh, let's welcome Joe this morning. Good morning, Zionsville Fellowship. It's a real joy to be here this morning with you all, and uh, a real privilege to uh, have known your pastor, Drew, for, uh, yeah, over a dozen years. And um, as Eric mentioned, I've worked at Crossway. It's a publishing company. We publish uh, gospel-centered books and the ESV Bible. Worked there for about six years. I was in pastoral ministry for about eight or nine years before working at Crossway. Um, during the early years of my pastoral ministry, I worked at Grace Church of DuPage uh, in Warrenville, Illinois, and did some postgraduate study at Wheaton College alongside Drew. And Drew's presence and friendship in those years was really significant in my life. As many of you know, Drew wrote an excellent book on friendship. Uh, a few years ago, and what he wrote, he lives. Uh, he is a great, faithful, encouraging friend and has been that to me over the around 15 years that I've known him. He's also a gentle, gifted pastor, isn't he? And he's a great pastor. He's a skilled and helpful leader. You've found in your pastor, Drew Hunter, a one-of-a-kind man and a one-of-a-kind pastor. He is worth following and imitating and trusting and listening to. So as a friend of um, your pastor, Drew's, for the past 15 years, I wholeheartedly commend him to you. All right, enough about Drew. Let's talk about God's Word. Um, we'll be continuing the summer series you all have been going through on the Psalms by looking at a couple of sections of Psalm 119. Don't worry, we're not going to look at the whole Psalm, just two sections of Psalm 119. So you can turn there in your Bible now. And I actually want to begin by reading just a couple of verses from 1 Kings chapter 18. You don't need to turn there, just two verses from 1 Kings 18, 20 to 21. The prophet Elijah is confronting the prophets of Baal. The people of Israel are living in idolatry. And there are these powerful verses in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 and 21, that I want to just be ringing in our ears this morning as we look at Psalm 119. So 1 Kings 18, 20 and 21, it says, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, and listen to his boldness, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? 
if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And then this sad response from the people, and the people did not answer him a word. How long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. Let's pray together as we jump into Psalm 119. Lord, we pray that you would help us by the power of your spirit to follow you, to follow Christ wholeheartedly. Not limping between two opinions, but wholeheartedly, fully in with you. And we commit our time to you now as we look into your word in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Psalm 119, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 and then jumping ahead to verses 33 through 40. And one of the things that the Psalms as a whole lead us to do is to reflect deeply on our lives, to ask ourselves important questions like, what do I really believe way deep down? What am I hoping in most deeply? What causes me distress or pain or anguish or anxiety? And what do I do with those emotions? Is God's word something that I treasure? Indeed, these types of questions and uh, testing and examining our lives is an important part of the Christian life. But we can often go long seasons of life, can't we, without doing the work of self-examination. So I want us to hear and really receive these verses from God's word that encourage and call us into this work of self-examination. Psalm 139 verse 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Lamentations 3 verse 40 says, Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Several years ago, I purchased a dirt bike for myself and for my son Noah And so we ride dirt bikes together. It's something, it's kind of a unique hobby that we enjoy doing together. And I didn't realize it, but a couple summers ago, my engine case cracked, or hairline cracks in a couple of spots. So what was it doing? It was slowly leaking oil. And if I hadn't examined my engine closely one day, looking carefully at the engine, I wouldn't have known about these cracks, and this slow leak would eventually have caused the engine to break down altogether. So all of a sudden, to my great surprise, this bike would have come to a screeching halt. And it is possible to be surprised by where we're actually at with God. We can float through life, assuming we're doing just fine. So we would be wise to pause 
to examine our lives to find out where there are spiritual cracks, so to say, and to confess and repent and change for our joy. So where are you at today? Not the person sitting next to you, not the family member that you came with, not the friend in in the church today, but you, where are you at today? Well, maybe you're asking, how do I examine my life? What does that actually look like, practically speaking? Well, one good way is by looking at the great commandment of God's word. And this most important command has two parts, to love God and to love others. So let's take the opportunity today to honestly examine ourselves in light of some basic questions. Sometimes my family, when we're on our way to church, there's a lot of noise and chaos. Or sometimes rushing out the door, the kids can be arguing on the way to church. We pull in just in time, the van door swings open, and chicken nuggets are being kicked out of the van floor as kids are shuffling out and climbing over one another. And we finally make it into church. We get their name stickers and on and into their classes. And then my wife and I sit down We sing to the Lord, we listen to God's word, we say we're sorry to each other for the ways that we've wronged one another, we enjoy the Lord's Supper, and for an hour we have, with four little kids, this precious word, quiet, quiet, to worship, to rest, to reflect, it's really precious time for us. And I'm sure for you too. But quiet reflection can be a rare thing in our busy lives, can it? And so we have an opportunity right now to quiet ourselves before God and intentionally think about some simple yet profound and pressing issues. Issues that sometimes we don't address head on. So consider these questions quietly in your seat now. Do I love God? And I hope that this bolsters your confidence in the Lord and in Christ. Do I love God? Is relationship with Christ of highest importance to me, above spouse, children, parents, roommate, best friend? Have I experienced the joy of knowing God? And do I live my life day in and day out, not just on Sunday morning, Do I live my life in that joy? Do I long for Jesus to return? Or am I more concerned about success or money or being liked? Do I read and meditate on the Bible to enjoy God and his promises. If someone were to watch my life, observe my life for a week, for this past week, let's say, could my life accurately be described as devoted to God? Some questions to reflect on. Another set of questions. Do I love others? Do I consider the interests of others in addition to and even above my own? Am I inclined to bear the burdens of others? Or am I mainly concerned about my own concerns? 
Do I care particularly, even as we just heard in this excellent testimony just a few minutes ago, do I have a particular care for the weak, the widow, the homeless, the needy, the poor, the lonely, and the outcast? Another way to ask that question is, do I have the heart of Jesus for others? Do I share a special bond with other believers in Jesus, or am I more drawn to spend quality time with those who don't really care about God? And do I forgive and pray for those who have wronged me? These searching questions for our hearts this morning as we think about our lives in this quietness before God today. You see, to be a true and thriving Christian does not mainly mean going to church. To be a true and thriving Christian does not mainly mean following rules or being ethical. To be a true and thriving Christian does not mainly mean getting baptized. To be a true and thriving Christian does not mainly mean going by the name of Christian. To be a true and thriving Christian means simply this, to be a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ. It's nothing less. Christians who are only that by name are not Christians as the Bible defines them. And it's nothing more. It's a very simple reality that even a four-year-old can understand of loyalty and commitment to the King of Kings, Jesus. That's what Christianity is all about. And this is what Psalm 119 repeatedly gets at. So Psalm 119 is the longest of the 150 psalms in the Bible. It has 176 verses, the most verses of, in, in one chapter in all of the Bible. It's broken up into 22 sections of eight verses apiece. The sections are in alphabetical order according to the Hebrew alphabet. So Aleph, the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, begins the first word of every verse in the first section. And then Beit in verses 9 through 16, and Gimel in verses 17 through 24, and Dalit in verses 25 through 32, and so on. So it's a beautifully poetic and highly organized psalm. Psalm 119 has a central theme, which you're probably aware of, which is the Word of God. And this theme runs throughout Psalm 119. God's communication to us about who He is and who we are and how we should respond to God. So if you were to read all of Psalm 119 right now, you'd probably come away thinking, wow, the person who wrote this has a very high regard for God's word. So an important calling, an important calling of Psalm 119 on our lives is this. Read, meditate on, study, examine, pray, live by, and especially love God's word. This is a treasure to us. This is a treasure to us. And an important promise of Psalm 119 for us is this. God's word will flood into your life the greatest and most lasting joys. This is a treasure to us. I was recently having a conversation with a friend about a conservative Christian college. And it's true of many churches as well that are becoming more and more liberal and slowly moving away from historic 
Christian orthodoxy. And at the foundation of this bent toward liberalism is an erosion of belief in the full inerrancy and authority and power of God's written word. You talk about sawing off the branch that you're sitting on. So Zionsville Fellowship and individual Christian cling to and cherish this treasure. It is truly a treasure for us. But there's an even deeper calling and promise in Psalm 119. You see, the one who wrote these poems doesn't love God's word as an end in itself. He loves God's word because it's a means of knowing and enjoying God himself. So the primary calling of Psalm 119 on our lives is this. Know and love and get near to God. And the primary promise of Psalm 119 is this. God knows and loves and desires to draw near to you. This is what Psalm 119 is all about. It's all about the greatness of God. So today we're looking at two sections of Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8, verses 33 through 40. And we're just going to look at two main points this morning from these sections. The first from verses 1 through 8 is that God wants our total and not half-hearted devotion. And then the second from verses 33 through 40 is that we depend totally and not partially on God to live this way. So let's start by talking about wholehearted devotion. I want to make clear that it's not just me saying this. This is in God's word. This is in Psalm 119 that, he calls, that God calls for our total and not partial devotion. So let's look at it together. First, the word in verse 4, you see it there, that the ESV translates diligently. The word diligently in verse 4 is the same Hebrew word that's translated in verse 8 as utterly. You see it there? You look at your Bible. Verse 4, diligently, same word as verse 8, utterly. And the psalm is actually structured, this section of the psalm is structured around this word with verse 4 ending a first section and verse 8 a second section. And the meaning of the word diligently or utterly has to do with fullness or completeness, or we might say muchness. It's a word used in Genesis 1.31 when God says what he made was very good. It's completely, fully, wholly, abundantly good. So we could translate verse 4, look at it there again, to say, you've commanded your precepts to be kept utterly or fully or completely or wholly or very much. In other words, the whole of who we are surrendered to the whole of what God wants in our lives. That's the first thing. Second, notice the word blameless in verse 1. In the Bible, blameless doesn't mean sinless perfection, as we might assume when we first read that word. Instead, it means not to be split in our affections or desires. It means to be blameless means to be single-minded in living for God. So it's not just lip service. It's not halfway in. It's not external adherence. 
without internal loyalty. It's all of me for God. It's not limping between two opinions. It's complete, 100% devotion. Third, notice in verse 2 that God's blessing is for those who seek him with their whole heart. Fourth, notice the word walk in verse 1, which biblically has to do with how we live our lives in their entirety. Fifth, notice how God's blessing is for those who do no wrong. Verse 3, again, not meaning a perfection, but a solid and decisive commitment to righteousness and justice. Sixth, notice the word steadfastness in verse 5, indicating long-term commitment to the Lord and his word, not fizzling out after a short while. Seventh, I think I'm on seventh. Notice in verse 6 that the psalmist sets himself as an example of someone who has his eyes fixed on God's commands. You get the point? Complete, long-lasting, total, absolute devotion to God. Not limping between two opinions. Not serving God one minute and then worshiping sex or relationships or popularity or power or success the next. Wholehearted devotion to God. This is what Psalm 119 very, very clearly calls us to. This is God's calling on your life, Christian. Now, as you hear this, and as you examine your heart and life, you probably, like me, feel a very painful gap between your life, where it is today, this morning, and where it's been this last week, a painful gap between that reality and this beautiful calling that God is calling us up into. And there's this, there's this, there's this gap, this painful gap between our lives and the calling of wholehearted devotion to Christ that we receive in Scripture. I feel that. And this gap comes with a deep and nagging sense that God is at best frustrated with me. And at worst, he's against me and opposed to me because of the life I have lived in light of the calling upon my life. But I I want you to see something remarkable about Psalm 119. This psalm, Psalm 119 in its entirety, and especially these few verses, has links to another psalm, which is Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 paints a beautiful picture of an ideal human being who loves God's word and who is fully loyal to him and who bears good fruit all throughout his life. And then if we fast forward about a thousand years, we see one in the streets of Jerusalem and in the towns of Galilee and in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus of Nazareth, who was fully loyal to God all the days of his life. One who loved God's word and lived by God's word and who was devoted to God even to the point of death and a death worse than any human being has ever experienced. And he died for us. Jesus died for us, for our failure to be wholeheartedly committed to God. And he rose from the dead three days later so that we today in the 21st century could live in the confidence that God is now for us, 100% for us. 
Christian, all your sins are forgiven today. Isn't that good news? And God's smile shines upon you and your life this morning, believer. He is for you unconditionally. And now you and I can begin to live wholeheartedly our lives for him. My wife Rachel's here. She's a beautiful picture of this. She was halfway in with God. She would push the limits but not go too far. She would say she was a Christian but then lived her life like an unbeliever. She tried to live like Jesus but also wanted to find out what the world had to offer. And then God powerfully got a hold of her life and I can say that 18 years later she's still all in with the Lord. Not perfect, I can tell you that. But Jesus is more precious to her than anyone or anything else. Is that you? I hope it is. It's the best, most joyful way that God's word is calling us into. What amazes me in this psalm is the confidence that the psalmist has that he's going to wholeheartedly follow God. That he's not going to give up. That he's going to continue. And in verses 7 to 8, if you look there, this theme strongly emerges where the psalmist says, I will praise you with an upright heart. I will keep your statutes. That's confidence. How can he be so confident? Well, we find out from verse 8 and especially verses 33 through 40 the answer to that important question. Namely, that his hope for keeping God's commandments doesn't come from his own strength. It doesn't even come from, I'll, I'll give half, I'll, I'll provide half of the equation from my own willpower, and then God, I'll expect you to provide half from your power. No, it's not like that at all. The confidence the psalmist has that I'm going to live wholeheartedly for God comes 100% from the power of God. You see, to live wholeheartedly for God requires total dependence upon God, total help from God. So verse 8, if you look at it there again, it raises a question for me when I read it. Because I, I, I can feel like the second part, that second stanza, where it says, do not utterly forsake me, comes a bit out of nowhere. What's the purpose of this phrase? The entire verse reads, I will keep your statutes, and then do not utterly forsake me. I believe what's being said here is, God, the only way that I can keep your statutes is if you intervene and help me. Or if you leave me, if you forsake me, if you go away, God, I'll never be able to live how you want me to live. You see, total commitment to God requires total dependence on God. We actually cannot be who God wants us to be. We don't have the resolve, we don't have the discipline, we don't have the strength, we don't have the heart to be who God calls us to be. At a basic level, we simply lack the desire to be wholehearted for Christ. We'd rather just add Jesus in to the good things we already have going in our lives. So when Psalm 119, 1 through 8, calls us to wholehearted devotion to God, it's actually an impossible demand. 
when the Bible calls us to love God with all that we are and to love our neighbor as ourselves, we can't do it. It's beyond our natural ability without the Spirit's work in us. But here's the amazing promise of the Bible. You don't need to turn there, but Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. So the Apostle Paul can say in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Therefore, the more that we learn to actively depend on God, the better. And the central way that we actively depend on God is through prayer, through prayer. Notice that verses 33 through 40, if you skip ahead there, it's a series of nine very direct and straightforward prayer requests. They're prayer requests, and I'll read through them, and as I do, you pray these requests to God as I read through these. We can pray these requests together. So first, teach me the way of your statutes, verse 33. God, give me understanding, verse 34. Lord, lead me in the path of your commandments, verse 35. Incline my heart to your testimonies, verse 36. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, verse 37. Give me life in your ways, verse 37. Confirm your promise to your servant, verse 38. Turn away the reproach that I dread, verse 39. In your righteousness, give me life, verse 40. You see, prayer is so vital, but it's so easy to neglect in the busyness of our lives. So let's today recommit to prayerful lives. When we're lost, prayer is our lifeline. When we're confused, it's a means to gaining understanding. When we, when we stray off the straight path, prayer is the way we find it again. When we're dull and cold in our hearts toward God, it's the way to be awakened and revived in our affections. When we're tempted to look at impure things, it's the way to fight against temptation, prayer is. When we've run out of hope, and maybe someone in here this morning has run out of hope, and you say, what do I do? Well, I'd encourage you from Psalm 119 to begin with prayer. Talk to God. Lord, restore my hope. When we're fearful and anxious, it's the path to peace and joy. When we're living selfishly and sinfully and spiraling downward, it's the way back to revitalization. So why not pray? Prayer connects us needy people to the only one who can really help us. I'm reading a book right now called The Dynamics of Spiritual Life. And it's a book that traces the history of revivals that have happened throughout church history. And what do you think is one of the common denominators whenever the Lord sparks revival in a certain place or a certain time? What is, the, what is one of the common denominators surrounding revival? Well, the, one of the key common denominators is people are praying. People simply start to call out to God. Individually, 
in small groups, as churches, they simply start to pray for renewal and revival and revitalization. It's focused prayers, praying prayers to God, like Psalm 119.37, give me, give us life in your ways. Lord, we feel cold toward you. We feel our affections are waning. We feel like we're going off the straight path. Lord, restore us, revive us, renew us, bring us back to that joy that we had at first with you. Now, why is prayer so important? Because for any true spiritual movement to happen in our hearts and lives, God must do it. And so we pray, and let's pray even now. We ask you, Lord, to work renewal and revival in our prone-to-wander hearts. Lord, maybe there is one or there are a few in here this morning who don't know you, who are apart from Christ, who haven't yet entered into that relationship with Jesus by faith. And I pray that right now in their seats, they would begin to pray to you and ask you to give them a new heart that loves you, that trusts in you, that follows Jesus. So I pray for that person who's far away from you this morning, that you would draw them near by the power of your Holy Spirit, even right now, Lord. And Lord, we pray for the follower of Jesus who's wandered away from you and who is cold and who is far away. We pray that you would draw that person near as well. Renew and revive a heart for you that hasn't been there maybe for months or even years. Renew that spirit of love for Jesus and desire to follow him. And Lord, for those of us who are seeking to follow you, but it's difficult and challenging, there are trials and temptations, we pray that you would renew each of us, Lord, and that you would send the power of your spirit so that we're awakened in a fresh way to your greatness, Jesus, and to the greatness of your word. And so we pray that you would hear these prayers, Lord, that you would answer, Lord, for your rich blessing on Zionsville Fellowship, that you would come and work in this church in a powerful way in the coming days, even as you have in the past, and that your spirit would continue to be at work in the lives of the members of this church. And so we commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.